Welcome to Real Marketers, where we hear from marketers who move fast, ask forgiveness, not permission, obsess about driving results, and are filled to the brim with crazy ideas and the guts to implement them. This is not a fireside chat, and there's absolutely no bullshit allowed here. And I'm your host, Stephanie Cox. I have more than 15 years of marketing experience, and I've pretty much done about everything in my career. I believe speed is better than perfection. I use the Oxford comma. I love Coca-Cola, have exceptionally high standards, and surround myself with people who get shit done. On this show, my guests and I will push boundaries and share the real truths about marketing and empower you to become a real marketer. There are just some people that you could talk to for hours, and today's guest is definitely one of those. I'm chatting with Andy Joles, CMO at FastSpring, advisor at Cloud Zero and Mission. He has more than 20 years of marketing experience and previously held leadership roles at Mission, ResearchNow, SSI, Instantaneously, Digital Postmail, Cooking.com, and more. We're talking about the importance of modeling and marketing, why everyone should outsource the bottom 10% of their job, the value of listening to sales calls, and so much more. Thanks for joining me on the show, Andy. Super excited to chat with you today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. First question, tell me something about yourself that few people know. Okay, so here's one thing that I don't think a lot of folks know. But way back in the mid-90s, I wrote a column called Ask the Web Wizard. And the reason I wrote that column was I created one of the first websites for Hewlett Packard, one of the first division websites. Um, so I spent a Thanksgiving vacation, me and another, uh, me and a, an, an engineer, uh, basically coding HTML and building and building a website. So maybe that's two things, but it's, um, but yeah, that's that's a thing that I don't think a lot of people know. And when I share that story, especially with engineers, they they think it's kind of funny that that uh, that I wrote a column called Ask the Web Wizard. Um, I w- just put myself on mute and was like furiously like Googling to see if I could find said column. <laughs> you can't find it. I don't think. Uh, I, don't, I don't. I couldn't. I, I couldn't at least not right away. Yeah. That's no, really cool. It's, 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 it's not out there. In fact, like, I mean, that was way back. I mean, those are early days. This is 1996. So this was, you know, literally a printed, you know, like a, a printed document that was circulated <laughs> inside of HB or an internal, I don't know, it's probably made in some old PDF software thing. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't out there to get Googled. Yeah. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with printed documents, those are things that Andy and I used to create when we were early on in our career. And that's how you would communicate with people. Exactly. Exactly. So moving on from that, I think one of the things that maybe would start our conversation off is we were talking about this off before we started recording was if you were to give a TED talk, what would the title of that be? And what would it be about? Right. All right. So, so the title of the TED Talk would be "Stop Creating," and it's it's a it's a link bait or a link baity type uh, type title, which is intended to get at one of my principles, 
which is that teams and people in general at work don't model enough. They, they're spending too much time trying to create things from scratch. And if we could just reset our minds to basically say, I'm, I'm just going to try to model constantly and save the that really needed energy for where I really have to create. And so instead of asking the question, like, how do I build something? We ask the question, like, how do I, you know, how do I go copy or model something that somebody else has done? Well, what's interesting about that is you're right. So many marketers, especially it's like, they feel like they're stealing or that it's not as authentic or it's not as like worthy if they copy, but in reality, like why wouldn't you look at what someone else has done and use that as a starting point for what you're going to do? Yeah. And I think, I think, I think part of the challenge is, is if you're in a category in a nascent category, there's usually not very much to model off of that's right inside your category. So, so part of it is just expanding uh, and saying like, Hey, I'm going to look outside at things that seem relevant um, that then I can go have the discussions. And, and here's the power of actually going outside is then you're not talking about competitors, you're talking about peers, right? And when you're talking about peers, you can reach out to them and say, hey, I'm really curious about why you have done X, Y, Z. And most times I found they will talk to you, they will tell you. So I think we might've talked about this in, in one of our uh, other conversations, but I actually have this as a, as a MBO for you know, my team. So they have, they have two things that I actually pretty much require them to do no matter which company I go to. And, and the first one is they have to model, right? They actually have to show in the quarter that they've done something where they modeled and they can actually present to the team and tell us about the journey, what their problem was, how they got to the solution, what they modeled. Um, and then the second one is that they, they outsource the bottom 10% of their job. So we can, we can save that topic, but, um, but the modeling thing is just, is, is super critical to me. When you bring that up to someone, right? Like to your team, when you take on a new role for the first time, how do people react to that? I mean, is that something they're excited to do? Do they question it? Like, how do you get them on board? I, so I think you're right. I think that the natural, um, there's a little natural resistance, right? Cause they're like, well, wait a minute. Like my, I, ch I chose this, um, role. I chose this discipline of marketing because I wanted to create. <clears throat> and, and, and I think I just have to, you know, just show them that how, that there is joy in, in talking to peers and there's joy in, in learning. Um, and as I said at the outset, just looking at their own personal, you know, um, at, at what we do on the personal side outside of work, right? Like, how do we learn to, to ski or snowboard? We don't just strap on the equipment and go. We, we take lessons. We look at YouTube videos. Um, you know, I've, I've coached kids sports uh, for the last several years, and I never played any of these sports, but... I learned how to do a lot of it on YouTube and, you know, to the point where literally like a dad asked me like, Oh, I didn't know you played baseball. And I'm like, I didn't. Right. But, 
while you're watching Netflix, like I'm watching, you know, how to, you know, how to field a ground ball that's going to your left uh, on YouTube, right? So it's just, you know, I, I think that's the thing that usually pulls them across is they see that they've done this in their personal life. Um, and then they just need to apply it to their work life. And then once they actually start to see the results and they have sort of more free energy uh, to really get creative, um, then they're on board. One of the things that I started thinking about when you were talking just a few minutes ago was around this idea of like imitation is the best form of flattery and how a lot of times I think marketers don't realize that. Like it's, you know, if I think about other brands that have done really well and they're kind of, let's say six to nine months ahead of me or in my company and where we're at, I'm not saying I copy exactly what they do, but by looking at what they're doing, clearly if they're continuing to do it, it's working. How can I take that and make it relevant for my business? How can I like to your point, learn from that? One of the examples in the B2C world that I think is a really great one is of what I'm a big fan of Burger King. Um, I don't eat the food because I have a gluten yeah. allergy, but I love their marketing strategy. And a lot of what they've done is taken really basic ideas that everyone's done before, but just put a slightly different spin on it. And it's, is it creative? I, I mean, I don't know if it's creative to offer a promotional, like a free Whopper to access and download your app, but is it creative to do it and par pair that with, it's the free Whopper if you order it and you're 600 feet within a McDonald's. I mean, yeah, that's creative, but it's two ideas that people have done before, just putting them together in a different way. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for marketers to look at like what you're saying, other what other people have done and find a way to make that relevant for their business. So th I think well, there's that makes a lot of sense. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, so, so I, I think the other piece of this is actually moving from B2B to B2C, right? So I started my career really in B2B and then <clears throat> I was young and it didn't seem very cool to me. And I was like, oh, I wanna move to B2C. And I moved to B2C and really learned and had a great journey there. And then decided like, oh, I wanna go back to B2B. And part of the reason I wanted to go back was I realized that B2B was really lacking a lot of what was done on the B2C side, right? So um, that may sound sort of obvious now in 2021, but at the time when I started to make that move, um, there was a lot of really bad marketing in, in B2B. Um, I think we've really come, we've come a long way, but I will tell, I will tell you, like I still pull up Netflix's homepage as an example to to teams to say look at what they're doing right like this is this is a to me an example and they usually when i pull it up it's changed from the last time that that i've seen it so you know they're iterating they're evolving um so you know i i do think that um it is the you know it it is a a great form of flattery and i think like <clears throat> if somebody copies something that i've done I'm, I, you know, I'm flattered, right? I just sort of feel like, okay, that means I'm doing something right. I feel the exact same way. And I love your Netflix example because I think sometimes B2B brands, I mean, we have gotten better, but a lot of the marketing is super boring. It's like, we feel like we have to market to companies and like, we're still marketing to people, you guys. Like I'm the same person in my B2B job as I am when I'm watching Netflix at night. Right. And my expectations are 
a lot of times, even in a buying situation, that of a consumer. I want to do and I want to get what I want when I want to get it. I, I need instant gratification. I don't want to go through your sales process necessarily. I want to figure it out before I have to talk, you know, if this is going to work before I talk to someone. Yet I find. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think, on the, um, yeah, I, I think on the B2C side, we, we had it more sort of in our head. Like we, we've got to get to that wow or magic moment quicker. And like, this isn't going to work unless we get to that. And in B2B, I think, you know, we were getting, we were getting sales and revenue without doing that. Right. So spending a little bit more energy on trying to figure out like, well, how do we, how do we get to that moment faster? Right. So that folks can really go, oh, I get it. I, I get sort of where the excitement is. So I, I get excited about how technology lets us, you know, do a lot of these things. So, um, you know, one of the team, one of the things my, uh, my team is, is sort of teasing me about is, is I often sort of start my morning by getting on my Peloton and listening, um, and actually watching chorus calls. Um, and I've geeked out and like the same, it, it is honestly, it's the exact same, laptop table that the Peloton instructor has, I somehow like ordered that same thing and I set up my laptop. So I probably look like if you were to take a photo of me, I probably look like an instructor, but, um, I'm literally watching chorus calls and turning down the volume on the Peloton. Now there's a downside. My workout is definitely not as, as challenging, right? I'm not, I'm not getting, I'm not getting that good audio feedback. Um, but I'm spending time listening to the voice of the customer and really trying to understand like where, like, where are the problems? Where, you know, where do they actually have the aha moment trying to figure that out? Do you find that other marketers are doing that? Or is that something that's like an untapped advantage that marketers could start using if they would just listen to more sales calls? Yeah, look, I think, so much of our experience is just is is friction, right? So it's we're we're trying to figure out how do we eliminate friction. In fact, that that that's how I articulate. Like that's our role with sales. Like we're we're there to try to figure out like how do we actually remove friction points and pull part of the story sort of more to the beginning uh, beginning of the journey, but. You'll see. I mean, I I sort of undertook a bit of a hack, right? Um, in in my Peloton story. <clears throat> so I think um, you know, for me, I joined Fast Spring in December. I'm about 90 days in. I felt like in the first 90 days, like I really need to learn the customer, learn the product, you know, learn sort of the analytics of the business. Um, and like, that's my obligation sort of in the first 90 days is try to figure a lot of that out and, and to do it early, right? Because I think it's always harder once you start and you just start building things and then you're trying to go back later and be like, oh, now I'm going to start to go, you know, talk to, um, talk to customers. But I do get excited about some of the technology making it so that it removed friction when, these conversational platforms evolved to say like, Hey, you don't actually have to go to the sales meeting at nine o'clock. You can actually watch it as a recording whenever, um, and figuring it out. 
I think the next part of the journey is, is, you know, is the uh, natural language processing around uh, the data and trying to figure out like, how do I actually just see snippets and how do I get the data aggregated? Um, but, but I think that's part of it is just figuring out like, like, how do we, how do we actually develop habits to, you know, to break through that? So that's one of mine that I've done. One of the things that you just said that I thought was really interesting was around removing friction. Yeah. And you know, like how that's so important, how as a marketer, sometimes I feel like our role is to add friction to some extent. And what I mean by that is like, there are metrics that we're held accountable to. A lot of people in the B2B world are held accountable to leads, right? We could rant on that for a while probably, but my favorite rant, (laughs) right? Exactly. But like in that situation, like we are to some extent, like supposed to put a little bit of friction in to build a pipeline and a funnel. How do you balance the two? How do you balance like figuring out ways to remove friction that you know makes the consumer experience better while also still being able to have the metrics to show that your marketing is working? Yeah, this is a re- this is a really hard one, right? Um, and there's so many places we could take this conversation. So, so one place to take it is is uh, as an example is pricing. Uh, if you have a value based pricing model, <clears throat> you've di- you've probably rightfully said like I'm not going to display pricing on a web page because people can't figure out what that pricing means without hearing more of the story. Um, so we, we as marketers do introduce friction there. We say like, hey, you, you've got to talk to somebody to, to learn more about pricing. <clears throat> now, the world is, the world's changing, right? I mean, I think you and I as peers can find out ballpark what some of the pricing for some of these platforms look like by talking to each other, right? So we have other ways to, to get at that pricing data. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. But I think the reality is we do find ourselves um, in a little bit of a predicament, right? Where we have to introduce friction or where, where friction does basically, um, it, it, it can actually work. Uh, I guess, you know, one, one of my stories about this, I remember interviewing with the CMO of eHarmony years and years and years ago. And at the time, I thought they had a great TV ad. And I said, this is a great ad. Like, why don't you have it on the homepage? And he said to me, he goes, why don't, why, why don't you think it's on the homepage? And I realized, oh, I just asked kind of a dumb question. <laughs> I'm like, they, they, I knew that they were very analytics focused. And he's like, look, we tested it. And it drove conversion down because people basically got distracted by the video and the great ad. And then they forgot to click through and start their journey uh, and sign up. So I don't, I don't have any biases uh, at this point, like I try not to have biases about what's going to work, um, and you know, really trying to inst- instill a culture again, kind of coming back to the modeling theme, that A/B testing is really about like let's just try different things, right? Probably things that we've saw somewhere else, and just see if they work, and let's let the let's let the data win. So it is one of my favorite uh, Jim Clark 
quotes, which is, uh, you know, if we've got the data, we're going to go with the data. And if we've got opinions, we're going to go with mine. So like I've, I've used that with my team and said like, look, like, and, and I've used it upwards towards the CEO. I'm like, look, you get to make the call if we don't have the data. Right. That's that's the luxury of being at the top of the of the hierarchy. Um, but if we've but if we've got the data, like you know, we want to be able to you know go with the data. Um, and so that's that's just another mechanism I, I think helps remove a little bit of the friction and the um, a little bit of the friction thinking. No, that's a great know. point. The other the other thing I wanted to bring up when you were talking about listening to sales calls and just the ability to be able to do that. I think a lot of times people forget that there's a difference between listening to sales calls and hearing sales talk about their calls. Because when sales talks about their calls, they're using their terminology and their perception of the conversation. And what I think you can really get when you listen to the actual call yourself, and it would be great if we could get more snippets and some of that stuff to make it more digestible is you hear the customer's words right? and there's a difference. Yeah. And I would say, look, this isn't, this isn't just a problem to pin on sales. This is, this is every team, right? I think there's always a telephone game. I think that's probably true for marketers too, right? Um, that, you know, kind of what we, what we spit back um, might be different than actually what, what actually was, was said. Um, so we're always as human beings, I think, trying to, you know, uh, apply our, I don't know that we're trying to apply our filters, but we will apply them. Um, so I, I, I do think in this particular case, in terms of, um, you know, the, the voice of the customer and the customer journey, it's just helpful for everybody just to go right to the source. I, again, I think this was some of the things that B2C companies did really well, like, you know, into it. Um, gosh, I remember they used to literally like walk up to people buying um, uh, TurboTax in the store and say, hey, can, you know, can I, can I write you a check for a hundred dollars and I'm going to follow, you know, I'm going to go home with you and actually sit behind your shoulder and watch you use the product. Um, which probably seems incredibly creepy and privacy violating like in 20, right now, 20, yes. 2021. But, you know, I think that's what we're trying to figure out. Like, how do we get to that in B2B? How do we get to see sort of how, you know, how people are doing this? So I will say, I think by just spending the time investing in listening to calls, it's also a way to build alignment, which I think is, um, also just such a great topic. I think alignment is just, it's, it, it's not something that happens naturally with sales and marketing, right? So I think um, if you step in and you start, because not only am I listening to the customer, but I'm listening to the rep and I'm able to go back to the rep and say, hey, <clears throat> I thought you did a really nice job. You were really helpful to me to learn how to storytell. Like I listened to you in the snippet talk about this. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of power in that, in that transparency, um, which, you know, I mean, you and I are, are, have been around long enough that like, we probably worked with people who just would felt like, wait a minute, I'm going to be recorded like all the time. Like, I'm not, I'm not cool with this. I'm not going to be comfortable with that. Um, and I think 
transparency and accountability have sort of have, have uh, rightfully won out here, right? So uh, that we're able to, you know, we're able to get that alignment. Yeah, I, one of the things I think has happened a lot, especially in the last like two or three years, some people would be afraid to be recorded because, oh, it's going to be used against me or I'm going to be evaluated or judged on it. And I think now people are just like, eh, like they don't even think twice about it because in reality, like that's not how the tool is used or not how it should be used. It should be used to help make us all better, whether that's through coaching, whether that's through like getting data and being able to use that to better improve sales, better improve marketing or product. It doesn't really matter, like all facets of the business. So earlier, one of the things that you said, and I know this about you, is that you tell your team to outsource the last 10% of their job. And I remember the first time I heard you say that, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um, so I think you need to explain more about it and like how you get people comfortable with it. Because I think for some people, and like I'll throw myself into that bus or the group, we're a little bit, right? Like we want to control everything. We want to control, control. There's no other word to use. Um, right. So how do you get people comfortable with what, like outsourcing the last 10% of their job and not, but then also not being worried that they're getting outsourced? Yeah. So, so look, so to the last part of the question, I think it's important that it's 10%, right? <laughs> um, and not 50, um, right? Um, it, it really is like let's let's try to figure out what we're all working on that it is really something that's not at our pay grade right so <clears throat> and just trying to figure out like if we can actually free up the bottom 10% then i can get you to basically replace that 10% at the top so not too different than than the 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 TEDx theme right of just being like, well, well, look, I'm I'm trying to figure out way a way for you to to buy, you know, buy that ten percent back where you can actually do some really really big things. And when we come in, and you know, um, I'm a believer in the whole uh, rocks, sand, pebble analogy. Uh, should I go through that? for your audience, what that is? A thousand percent. Yes, please. Okay. So, so, um, it, the way this was told to me is, is a professor basically stood up in front of the class and he has two giant glass jars <clears throat> and he's in, in, in the first one, he pours in the sand, then he pours in the pebbles and he pours in the rocks and the rocks don't fit. So then he reverses it. Right. And he pours in the rocks. Then he pours in the pebbles and he pours in the sand and it all fits easily. And how this applies to business or getting shit done, as you like to say, um, is that if we actually make rocks, the bigger things that we have to do more of a priority, then we'll make sure that they actually get done. And so the, the outsourcing thing is also intended to help get some of that time back to work on rocks, to work on, on bigger things. So, um, and I will tell you, this is another unusual thing that I do, which I'm not sure I've, not sure I've shared with you, which is I will often tell my teams that the way to think about rocks or other people use smart goals, right? Um, is to think about them like a resume point, like something that they're putting on the resume. 
So the reason I do this is no one writes a bullet point on their resume that says, I can increase conversion rates. They don't do that, right? Like no, they, they, they shouldn't. They, they shouldn't, right? If they're doing that, they're, they're, they're not getting hired. They're not getting interviews probably. But they have, they have a complete story. Usually a resume bullet point is, I face this problem. I use these resources to achieve these results, right? And smart goals should look like that. But what I've found in telling teams like, oh, like your goals have to be smart, they still struggle. And so if I tell them, I'm like, look, I'm not actually, a, I'm not telling you to update, I'm not trying to give you sort of um, some sort of signaling device about where you are on the team by telling you to, to update your resume. I'm not telling you to update your resume. I'm telling you like, put yourself in that frame. Like you're writing a bullet point that you want to put on your LinkedIn. That's what your rock should read like for the quarter, right? That's what it should be. You should be proud. If, if you're rereading that rock, like towards the end of the quarter and going, God, you know, I, I don't think I would actually put this, you know, on my LinkedIn profile. I'm like, <clears throat> then we didn't come up with something big enough. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. It's such a great point to people too. Cause I think sometimes we get stuck a little bit in what well, I've always done it. Who else is going to do it? There's no one else to do it. And it's to your point, like it's not a rock. Yeah. It needs to get done, but does it need to get done by you? Right. So you mentioned resumes, which then made me think a little bit about what you interview for when you are looking at someone's resume and talking to them. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So now, now anybody who listens to this and inter interviews me will probably know my, my secret, my secret sauce, but here it goes. Um, so usually by the time somebody gets to me, you know, they've, they've probably met with other members of the team or we've already, maybe you've already talked to me and we've vetted a lot of the functional capabilities, <clears throat> but the biggest value I have, um, and I'm pausing because I used to describe this as intellectual curiosity and I've, I've rebranded this to relentless curiosity. It basically what I'm looking for in someone that they can show me examples, both professional and personal of relentless curiosity. Like I've, I found like that is a better determinant for success um, then probably all the other things that, that I might ask questions around is if, if someone is, uh, really doing some pretty interesting things on the weekend, right. Then that usually means they're going to end up being, you know, they're going to apply that to, uh, to, to the work. So, um, I'll pause there. I'll let you react to that. And then we can keep going. Well, as soon as you started talking about this, and I know this about you, my first thought was like, I tell my kids this all the time, even to some extent, which is the best way to be, to grow in your career long-term is to have a passion for learning. Like to your point, relentless curiosity, you always want to learn something new. You want to figure something out. You like problem solving. And I think to your point, like that's, 
that's hard to figure out with people though. Like how to get to figure, everyone says they like to learn, they like to be challenged, but there's a difference between people who say they like to do it and people who do it. And you mentioned earlier about baseball coaching and how, you know, when someone else is watching Netflix at night, you're watching YouTube videos to figure out how to coach baseball, which is right. the definite, right? Like a, that's curiosity and trying to figure, trying to figure something out that you don't know. So how, well, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was gonna say, so how do you figure that out in an interview? Like you've already, to your point, vetted this person. This person can do the job. They have the skill sets, the experience, et cetera. And now I'm trying to figure out if they're, in a lot of ways, the right culture fit right. for what what I need on the team. It's exactly right, right? So, <clears throat> so again, like I'll ask questions about, like, so tell me, tell me what you did last weekend. Tell me what you're gonna do next weekend. Um, you tell me what you would do if you had a six week sabbatical, like what, like what, what would that look like? Um, tell me actually what you've done during COVID <clears throat> because I think especially, um, especially for those folks who, uh, like younger folks who don't have kids, for example, and like, I have kids. I still took a class on machine learning <laughs> during this time. I mean, we were locked in. And so I just, um, for a while I, I had this like, Hey, you know, stop watching Amazon prime and Netflix and, you know, for a little while and, uh, and go take a class, go study, go figure something out, figure out, figure out something else to do. So I think that might become like an interesting interview question. Like, what did you do differently during COVID, right? That you sort of saw, like you, you, your time did shift. How did, you know, how did you apply that time? Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think about different ways to, to get at the answer. Um, some candidly, which are a little, probably a little disarming, right? Of just, of, of like a, you know, I'm asking people like, oh, just tell me about your weekend. I'm, you know, curious sort of what, what you did. But, but I also think that the, this is something that's important to interview for, right? Um, when, when you're looking at a company, I think if you, if you have this, you want to see that the company does this. So <clears throat> I'll never forget, I, um, I interviewed at a company, 1-800-CONTACTS, contact lenses, um, I'm walking through the parking lot with the CEO and there are a bunch of engineers huddled around somebody's truck. And the CEO asked them, was like, Hey, you know, what are y'all doing? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, Tony here doesn't like the sound of his horn. So we're trying to figure out if we can actually re-engineer the sound of it. And why? It, because That's he just didn't like question. it, right? Right. He, he he didn't like it. He wanted to change it. One he wanted to see if he could change it, right? Because it bothered. That him. sounds like something my husband would do. And he's like, "I'm <laughs> going to spend five hours in the garage just to face. Let's see if this is possible." I'm like, "Okay." But but look, I I think that kind of tinkering is super important to have in your fabric, right? I think you you're wanting folks. I think people who are that curious 
right? They're going to tinker. They're going to constantly be exploring and trying to figure out um, how how to get this done, right? So, <clears throat> so I think uh, it's it's really hard to model behavior if you're just not naturally curious, right? Um, or if you, you can't figure out how to apply that at work, um, then you're just, you're not constantly sort of um, looking. But, and by the way, I think one thing that makes me different than a lot of my peers, and uh, I'll actually admit this, like I'm not a huge book reader. Like, but that doesn't mean that I'm not intellectually curious. And, you know, I just, I read a lot of stuff online, right? And I'm, I'm more fragmented in my digestion of information, I think. So, um, but I find it, it's always interesting because I feel like when I listen to everybody's podcast, it's like, oh, I'm a huge reader. Oh, I'm a huge reader. And frankly, I feel a little bit like, I, you know, the imposter thing starts to come in. I'm like, oh, wow, am I not that smart? Like all these people are reading like all the, you know, all these books. You know, I end up reading a lot of fragments of books because I'm reading through and, and basically saying, okay, I'm, I want to figure out how to get the gist, but it could be a topic for another day. Well, no, I'm in the same way. I am, I am a big reader, but I'm not a big reader of like business books, mainly because like, I feel like they're just like an echo chamber for what's on LinkedIn. Right. <laughs> so it just doesn't like, it doesn't, doesn't bring value to me. I like to read all kinds of other things. Yeah. And I read a lot online as well. But I think people learn differently too. Like some people love to watch, would rather watch videos to learn. Whereas other people, like I, for me, I read a lot faster than like I could watch a video. So I would right. prefer to read something than watch a video. Just yeah, personal preference. L look, and I, th I think that makes it challenging for us as marketers too, because you're trying to figure out like, okay, um, you know, Going back to that eHarmony example, it's like, well, aren't there some people that just like that's that's how they absorb the journey? Like they're gonna they're gonna want the video, right? Um, but maybe part of the realization it doesn't always have to ha happen on the homepage, right? And you can figure out how you talk to different folks in different ways, um, you know, different parts of the site, right? Exactly. So, final question for you: If you could give one piece of advice to marketers today in 2021, what would it be? So I think the piece of advice that I would give to younger folks, I, 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 re I reframe the question to think about myself, the younger version of myself. And that is just spend more time networking, right? Spend more time, but, but the right kind of networking. Don't focus so much on your personal brand, but try to figure out how you can spend more time, you know, with peers, understanding how to hone your craft, really get good at your craft. And I didn't mention this, so I want to mention this, that I, I have one more sort of undocumented, but said goal to my team, which is to say, look, look I, I want you to become so good at this that you're asked to be on a panel. And that language is, um, it's, it's on purpose, right? Which is that I realize that not everybody's an extrovert, right? Not everybody wants to actually go be on a panel, but everybody should be good enough that they at least get asked. And then I can decide like, 
yeah, I either want to do this or I, or I don't want to do it, right? It's me or it's not me. Um, so that's, that's, that's the piece of advice that I would definitely give um, certainly most, you know, more, most uh, younger marketers. I absolutely loved Andy's idea of outsourcing the bottom 10% of your job. Once I had time to digest it, the first time I ever heard him say that, and it's been a while ago, I was like, what are you talking about? That sounds crazy. And then when he explained it more, I started thinking about it and I was like, this is actually brilliant. There are things that all of us do, regardless of the level you are in your career, that are, you know, as Andy says, below your pay grade. They're not worth your time. So if you had budget, could you outsource that to someone else? That way you could spend 10% of your time focused on something else. And I think that's a challenge for all of us. Is there a way for us to outsource 10% of our job? Can you get some budget to go do that? And if so, why aren't we doing that? So that's what I challenge all of us to do this week. Ask your boss if you can get some budget to go outsource something that you're doing that isn't worth your time, but still needs to get done. I think you might be surprised how often they say yes. You've been listening to Real Marketers. If you love what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And don't forget to tell a friend. All of this marketing goodness shouldn't be kept a secret.